0: How do we begin to understand the impact of my suffering? Uh, Or maybe stated in a question why does depression and anxiety hurt so bad? And unless we understand this question, what we'll do is we're just going to try to feel better. We're going to try harder to feel better there's going to come some point where we get tired of being down and somehow we're just going to try to weld something up inside of us and, and we're, we're going to fight this this time. We don't know what that means. We don't have any particular strategy. We're just tired of feeling tired. And, and we don't know what to address. We just want to do something. And it's by understanding the impact that lets us begin to see where we can address it. Now some people begin to have a rebuttal at this point, And they go, now wait a second. If I look at the impact of my depression and anxiety, it's just going to make me feel worse. That's partly true. Uh, but I would compare that as a parallel to those people who are in significant debt. And they don't want to look at the bills. And they think if I just put all the bills together, it's going to overwhelm me. And I'm not going to feel good about it. I'd rather just not know what debt was there. No, um, it, it doesn't, we can just, in that parallel, we hear it, we go, that doesn't make any sense. And when we don't understand the impact, it may eventually, uh, it may initially make us feel worse, um, but it's going to give us the points where we can begin to engage. And so, um, you know, we look at the factors that contribute to impact. Uh, and again, from David Murray. He says, an additional benefit to having some knowledge about depression is that it will prevent the dangerous and damaging misunderstanding that often leads people, especially Christians, to view medication as a rejection of God and His grace rather than a provision of God and His grace. Uh, And that's one misunderstanding that when we don't understand the impact of depression, we come up with these false storylines. When you ask me, why are we doing step three before step four? It's because until we have a better understanding of the impact of depression, the kind of false stories that we build around the experience, it will be harder for us to see them as false. When we understand the impact of it, we'll go, ah, that's why that's not true. Now, as we look at the impact, part of what I would want you to realize, there's no two experiences of depression and anxiety that are the same. And that's not just because every person is different. Yes, every person is different. Um, but part of it is, we never talk to a subject. You know, sometimes people say, tell me, what, tell me what the Bible's answer to depression is. As if we talk to a subject. I've never talked to depression. I've talked to people who have experienced depression, but I'm always talking to a person not a subject. And when we ask the question, what does the Bible say about blank? Sometimes we we lose sight of that. Now as we look at some of these impacts, um, here's a couple of temptations. One is, uh, don't allow this to overwhelm you. There's nothing that we're about to look at that is going to be true because we looked at it. Whatever we see was there before we talked about it in here. We didn't discover anything Uh, we just gave it a name that way we can actually have words that gives it a handle where we can say hey this is what I'm struggling with Uh, and don't minimize your experience you know as we look at several of these and if you go "Ah, well there's three of them that I don't have mine's not that bad no suffering is not a competitive sport if you've ever heard me talk that is one of my high horses the way that I say it frequently, just because somebody else got hit by a truck doesn't mean my knee surgery hurts any less. It doesn't. And so just because I look at this and there's multiple ways that depression and anxiety can impact somebody and I don't have all of them, I guess mine's not that bad, I shouldn't be whining, that's, that's not a helpful way to engage this conversation. So what are some of the things that um, that impact the or cause the impact of depression and anxiety. One is looking at the cause. Um, depression and anxiety that's rooted in my choices has one set of impact because it has aspects of guilt and shame associated with it. If it's from my biology, it has a different set of impact. If it's from my environment and just feeling helpless to change things that, that are very important to me. All of those things are going to give it a different type of impact. The duration. The longer we struggle with anything, the more it feels like it becomes part of who we are. The more we begin to identify ourselves with what we're experiencing. I like the way Paul Tripp says it. He says the longer we struggle with anything, the more likely we are to define ourselves by that problem divorced, addicted, depressed, codependent, ADD, we come to believe that our problem is who we are. While these labels may describe particular ways that we struggle as sinners, or I would add as sufferers, in a fallen world, they are not our identity. If we allow them to define us, we will live trapped within their boundaries. That is no way for the child of God to live. But that is part of the impact. It's just, how much have I begun to identify myself by this struggle? Uh, the number of occurrences. Uh, the more times we experience depression and anxiety, uh, it almost becomes as if the good times were the commercials, and depression and anxiety was the show. Uh, you know, the good times are the break, they're the intermission, uh, and, and the actual experience that's life. Uh, and the more times it comes... Uh, the more we tend to think of life that way. Uh, And with each occurrence comes an attempt uh, to overcome, and we begin to feel like we can't do anything right. We begin to get into that mentality. Never in my life have I tried harder to defeat anything and failed more miserably, and that's part of what makes it our identity, is we just feel like a complete and absolute failure, because how can I do so many other things decently well, but I can't even begin to get this one right? The reaction of friends and family. You know, there is that distance of discomfort. When people don't know what to say, they often do one of two things. They either avoid, or they say kind of stupid stuff to make themselves feel better. Uh, Is that not the experience of funerals? Uh, How often do people say things at funerals because they don't know, they just don't know quite how to engage, and so they, they wind up saying things, and we go, that really wasn't helpful. Um And it's that distance of discomfort. Uh, That's why I like uh, Alberts and friends where they say, uh, in a word of a testimony, the most profound sentence uttered by my spiritual director. Just talking about somebody that was walking with them. When I was in the midst of my depression was, I am not afraid of your despair. It is uncomfortable for many caregivers to enter the dark night of the soul with those who traverse the path of despair. And that's what we want this resource to be. Something that allows us that if we don't know what to say, we don't know what to ask, we at least say, hey, let's go through this together. Let me begin to get to know your experience in a way that even if I'm not an expert on anxiety or depression, whatever that would be, I can walk through something, I can kind of read along and hear what you're saying and get to know your experience better. Uh, Then there's the losses associated with depression and anxiety. We'll cover that in step five. Uh, The interpretations of depression and anxiety. This one I think is huge. Uh, And I give many different kinds of ways that we can begin to interpret life that add to the impact of depression and anxiety. Uh, False extremes. You know, the various forms of all or nothing, black or white thinking that oddly is very similar to how we think when we're angry. Uh, This is uh, an observation that Ed Welch makes. He says, oftentimes, because men aren't really given permission to be afraid, culturally speaking, uh, they opt for anger. And, And that's why this same kind of false extreme pattern that often shows up in anger is also very present in depression and anxiety. False generalizations. Assuming an unpleasant experience will become the new normal for life. Whatever I'm experiencing right now, if it's down, if it's fearful, that's just the way things are always going to be. False filters. Uh, Filtering out any positive experience that does not fit with my down mood. False transformation. Changing our perspective on positive experiences to make them seem bad. Uh, Kind of the Eeyore effect. Uh, It's a nice day, but it'll probably rain this afternoon. Um, You know, that kind of thing. False mind reading. Assuming the negative opinions we have about ourselves uh, when we put them in the mouths of others. Uh, False fortune telling. Living as if our negative expectations about the future are true. Uh, Another observation that Ed Welch makes about depression and anxiety. He says it's a form of being a false prophet. We make all of these predictions about the future. The vast majority of which are not true that if you, if you were a betting person and you had a friend that was telling you which teams to bet on, and that friend was your depression and anxiety, and your friend was as accurate as your depression and anxiety was, you would quit listening to them. Because the accuracy rate of our depression and anxiety is just not that good. But we trust it. The hardest thing in all of the world for us to doubt is our fears. Even though it's one of the most unreliable things in our life. Uh, Feeling-based reasoning. Uh, Treating our negative feelings as if they were facts. Uh, False shoulds. You know, when we think we should do more than would fit in a 24-hour day, uh, there's some point where just our overly heightened expectations are what's weighing us down. False responsibility. False responsibility. Uh, those of us who have a very hard time of uh, being happy when everybody around us is not happy and we feel responsible for everybody else's emotions. Um, now here's part of what, when I read that list, that just jumps off the page at me. Those are remarkably normal. Do you know anybody who doesn't think that way? I mean, this is the common human experience. I think all of us do some form of this every day. Um, Here's the benefit to seeing it on a piece of paper. If you can see it, you can fix it. That's what I tell my. I love coaching little kids, especially baseball. And, And there's that point where I'm talking to them about their swing, and they're up there and they kind of throw their hands out like that. Is that a good swing? Say no. Now, uh, that's not a good swing because you don't throw your hands out there. You bring your hands tight to the body. And there's that moment when the kid goes like this and you can see him and he, he blinks real big when he does it. And he can, I'm like, if you can feel it, you can fix it. You just caught it. You can tell it's not right. you got a chance now. Let's get after this. Um, I'm in a different personality when I coach. Um, but when we see things like this, and we go, wait a second, that that was a false extreme. That was emotional reasoning. Uh, That was fortune telling. That's me trusting my fears absolutely when my fears are not a good betting partner. When you can feel it, when you can sense it, when you're doing it and you kind of wince and you blink and you go, ah! That means you're in a position to do something about it. You've become aware of it in the moment that gives you the opportunity uh, to impact it. Now what are some of the changes in lifestyle that add to the impact? Uh, To help us think about this, I think D. Martin Lloyd-Jones has a couple of quotes. He says, the result is uh, that the person, by person talking about more than just the physical body, their personality, their family history, their life situation, their bodily makeup, the person who is more given to depression than another before conversion will still have to fight that after conversion. It's just nice to hear a pastor say that. Yeah, okay, that there's not a universal Christian personality. It's not as if Christians are supposed to be extroverts or introverts or organized people or, you know, just kind of feel good in the moment people. Uh, that's what organized people say about people who aren't organized people. Is, anyway. It, it, there's not a universal Christian personality. And if we if just kind of who we are, how we're made up, is more given to depression before we became a believer, chances are those parts of who we are were not radically transformed. That's going to be part of what we have to walk out post-conversion. If you don't know, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones is a physician who became a pastor. And I was in the 1900s, and so some of the medical technologies have come up, but he was a pastor who thought like a physician. Uh, In another place, he says, "Uh, Christians don't understand... How physical, psychological, and spiritual realms interrelate. Uh, Because Satan muddies the boundaries. And again, he says, you know what? It's not just that these are kind of abstract realities. There is an enemy that we have that loves to muddy these waters. Because it's part of what messes us up. He says, many of our troubles are caused because we think a problem is spiritual when it is physical. Uh, We think the problem is physical when it's emotional or spiritual. Uh, And just being able to divide those things is important. And so what are some of the things in our lifestyle? And let me give you a picture. When you think about depression and anxiety, think of it like that person who you thought was coming over as an annoying house guest. You didn't really want to let them come over, but you didn't have a good reason to say no, so, so they come over. But then you realize they don't intend to be a house guest, They start hanging out pictures. They start moving furniture. And if you don't de-accommodate those changes, you got a roommate. That's what we're talking about right now. Passivity towards the changes that depression and anxiety brings into our life is permission. And these are some of the things that we're going to have to begin to engage with. So what are some of those unhealthy life accommodations? Well, this is where we start to hear some recurrence of things we've already talked about. Erratic sleep patterns, a poor diet, uh, avoidance of things that we know we need to be doing, being so busy that we can't get everything done and we're perpetually stressed out and feel like a failure, neglecting those things that are interesting and enjoyable to us and thinking we'll get to those things later. Those are some of the unhealthy life accommodations. Changes in our role and identity. Living in response to our emotions. Oftentimes, when we're in the midst of depression and anxiety, we wake up in the morning and the first question that comes up to our mind is, How do I feel today? Let me ask you a question Who feels good first thing in the morning? Who thought that was a good time to ask the question? That's a horrible time to ask the question. Uh, But we begin to measure our day. I mean, we just, How do I feel today? And it's as if a day could not be productive, a day could not be satisfying, a day could not be good, and we experience in depression and anxiety. That means a day has to be perfect in order to be good, and that's just not a good criteria. And so part of what we've got to begin to introduce is a category that says, you know what, I could experience depression and anxiety today, and today could still be good. Um, A loss of hope for change. You can put a big old asterisk right there. That is one of the primary indicators that we've moved from something that's situational to chronic uh, when we begin to lose our sense of hope. Passivity towards change. Uh, When our attitude becomes, it doesn't matter what I do. And then a loss of a sense of time. You know, as depression and anxiety sets in, we begin to let go of goals. We begin to lose a sense of purpose. That sense of hope dissipates. And it's things like goals and purpose and hope that gives us a sense of time. It gives us a sense of movement. It gives us a sense that one day is contributing to the next and this is going somewhere. And all of a sudden, life just becomes kind of blah. And that's where not... That's where having the sense that the choices I'm making matter becomes so important to offsetting depression and anxiety. But another part of the impact is the impact on family and relationships. Um, Albers and friends, uh, they give us one example of this. It's the way that kids often interpret it. Uh, A child interprets the lack of interest in their lives from a depressed parent as evidence of a lack of support care and love, the inability to name what they are feeling and why they are feeling as they do complicates an already complex situation. So again, we hear both impact and we also hear story. You begin to hear not just that a child experiences something, but they encase that with a particular narrative. That's where we're going. I just want to foreshadow it for a minute. Now it's easy at this point Uh, to begin to, as we look at this, get a sense of self-pity and shame and feel bad about feeling bad, I want to encourage you not to do that. The most important thing, that if you're in a role and you can see that uh, the depression, anxiety that you're experiencing is impacting others, the most important thing that you can do is not feel bad, is to continue to grow. The reason we bring this up is, is really two reasons. One, so that you can see it when it's present, so that we don't normalize this as something that other people need to accept, and so that we can minimize its effect. But chances are, uh, you can think of this in two lenses. You can think of this both in terms of uh, how your depression or anxiety may be affecting others, but then chances are you've had significant people in your life who've experienced depression and anxiety and go, wait a second, this is part of what I was learning and trying to accommodate from their life to mine uh, that could have had some unhealthy impact on the way that I experienced these emotions. And so uh, what are some of those things? Uh, special rules. When, when somebody's experiencing depression and anxiety, there becomes these, some things that are just too much. Too much. That aren't necessarily too much. Um, you know, It's similar to when somebody grows up in the household of an alcoholic. there's just certain things that kind of sets them off and you don't do. And, and there' become those special rules about what's too much, and you begin to live as if that's something that you can't do, but you don't understand, because other people seem to be able to do it just fine, but then you feel guilty and awkward when you do it, and it just, eh, it all feels icky. Um, and then you go through life with certain things that aren't public knowledge. Again, just certain things that we can't talk about. Uh, resource monopoly. And again, this, this isn't a spot for us to feel bad, but um, counseling, um, medication, uh, things that uh, we may do as a, a hobby to self-medicate, or, it, those things require resources. And if they go one place, they don't go another place. Uh, confusion. You know, there's, no, there's no physical sign. It's not like a broken arm that's in a cast or bruises where we can say, ah, this is why something's different. And so particularly children in the life of a parent, there's not something that clearly indicates this is why something's wrong, which leads to anxiety. If I can tell something's off and I don't know why, I start to get anxious. Guilt. Um, Guilt is very appealing. Do you know why guilt is appealing? Because it gives us a sense of control. If it's our fault, then we can do something about it. And so we desperately try to make sense of things as if it were our fault. It's almost at times in the context of suffering that we want guilt because then we could do something about it. If it were my fault, I could change it. Um, Maladjustment. you know, in the presence of the kinds of things that we're talking about, normal has too many accommodations to it to be a healthy normal. Uh, role reversal. Uh, the child might become the kind of protector of the parent's emotions or take on some caregiving capacity. Uh, friendships begin to become one way friendships. Uh, instability makes sense in light of a lot of this. Uh, our view of medication. Again, I want to be very medication neutral. But oftentimes in families where I have seen depression and anxiety become chronic, everything in life is explained by whether or not the medication is working. It becomes the one variable explanation for anything that goes wrong. Uh, you know, this isn't going well, my medication is not working like it's supposed to, I need to go get that adjusted. Again, I would just say maybe. That's one possible explanation, but it becomes the default explanation in a way uh, that doesn't really train us to screen through other areas that we might need to assess and make adjustments in. Uh, Grief and losses. Sense of shame. Anytime there's secrets, there will be shame. And when there's things that we don't feel like we can talk about, whether it's in our life or the life of a parent or somebody else that we care about, secrets just come with shame. You know, secrets are kind of like the aftertaste or the shadow of shame. They just automatically come along in a spiritual crisis there's all kinds of God questions that come up uh, in the midst of our experience of depression and anxiety and so you know, if you're gonna say what summarizes uh, this step of understanding the impact I like the way that Ed Welch says it he says don't assume that you understand what somebody means by depression or anxiety don't fill in the meaning from your own experience which may or may not be similar instead listen allow the depressed person to fill their the word depression with the meaning it has for him or her this doesn't make it subjective as if depression can be whatever we think it is but it does mean it's a intensely personal experience and i hope what you're getting from this resource is the kind of thing where if it's your experience, you can put it into words in a way that somebody else can get it. Or if you're the friend coming alongside, that it gives you the kind of questions that you can raise to help understand what they mean by the word depression. I think the word depression is a lot like the word dog. Dog has a semantic range that goes from poodle to Great Dane, from a cat that barks, to a horse that people let live in their house. Uh, the word depression has that kind of range to it. It goes from normal sadness, what we feel that's just proportional to day to day experience, to something that is this chronic unrelenting weight. And instead of assuming we know what somebody means by the word or depression or anxiety, Hopefully we now have questions that let us get to know that experience.